and thank you for joining me today on the big T trauma. I just want to go ahead and start by recapping a few important sentiments from the previous podcast episode. And again, just to go ahead and say thank you for watching or listening. And again, I am Dr. Antoinette D. Coslow, DHA. We previously got a little closer to the water and began dipping our toes into the water. We are owning our shit, the pretty parts, the not so pretty parts, and all the trauma in between. The trauma in between is like the glue that's holding all the pretty parts and not so pretty parts together. We will continue down our path to reclaiming our truth, our story, our destiny, while self-correcting our trajectory. And I like that saying so well, that sentiment, that I'm going to try to incorporate it in future podcast episodes. In dealing with trauma and surviving trauma, it means that one at some point in time was a victim of something unpleasant, whether it was physical, emotional, spiritual or physical or verbal, or whether it was a one-time occurrence, ongoing, whether it lasts a couple of seconds, minutes, days, weeks, years, or decades. Let's briefly talk about victim blaming and the rabbit hole that can ensue. Victim blaming, what does it mean? And what does it actually entail? And what role does the victim play, if any? And what is actually a victim? We're going to talk about those today in this podcast, as well as what does a victim look like? In victim blaming, we often assume that once a person or victim is tired of their situation, they will do something to change it. Let me give you a better example. We often assume that a woman experiencing domestic violence at home from her husband or partner, when she finally gets tired of being beaten and humiliated, she will finally leave. She will remove herself from that situation. Another valid example is when grandparents allow their adult children to move back home. Maybe they've experienced hard times and the parent is allowing them and their kids back in. Once there, that child and that those grandchildren become abusive, whether it's through being financially irresponsible, requesting a lot of money and time and efforts, or just being disrespectful of rules. Sometimes outsiders will say, well, once those grandparents get tired, they'll put that kid out and those grandkids, they will put an end to it. And again, those both are valid assumptions. But the reality is for victims, it's not always easy to remove oneself from the harm of the trauma being inflicted upon them. And by that, I mean, sometimes it's actually above our pay grade. And again, what does that mean? What would I say is above one's pay grade? 
Well, sometimes it's because the brain actually makes that decision for you. And let me go ahead and be a little bit more specific on what I'm saying. We often think of emotional responses to danger and extreme stress as fight or flight. But researchers, especially social scientists, believe there may be at least two additional responses that your body may have, your brain may decide. And that is freeze or fawn. So let me go back over them again. So fight, as we know, you put up your dukes, you're ready to, to do battle. Flight, you realize the situation is dangerous or stressful and you remove yourself. Freeze is when you neither fight or flight. And freeze is pretty much when your body pretty much shuts down. You cannot run if you want it to. You can't fight and usually you can't scream or ask for help or even say no. Your body simply takes over and makes those decisions for you. A good example that many of you are probably aware of is if you watch a nature show. And if you've ever seen the gazelle or the zebra that's caught by the lion or crocodile, and sometimes they'll fight for a minute or two and then they'll freeze up. And if you've noticed, their eyes are still moving. And that's because their body, their brain has taken over and has chosen to freeze. These are normal responses that are often above our pay grade. And again, when I say that, I mean, we all have an idea in our mind of if X happens, I'm going to respond this way. Well, if that was to ever happen to me, I wouldn't do what she did. I'm going to do this other thing. That may be what we all believe we, we want to do and we plan to do. But sometimes your brain takes over and makes that decision for you, especially in response to freeze. And then fawn is the other visceral response. And that simply means is that when one of the other three options are considered unsuccessful in its attempt, meaning you freeze, you fight, or you flight, those are unresponsive or unsuccessful, fawn may take over. And fawn simply means that one becomes agreeable to their predator. One becomes amenable to their abuser. One tries to side and, and tries to empathize with what is doing them harm. Um, it can be likened to, well, if I'm the victim, then hopefully I'm the only one and that maybe I'm protecting other people from being victimized. I'll just take the brunt of it myself. And of course, just note that I always bring the receipts. I bring the facts. I bring documentation and references. And don't worry if you look on this podcast webpage, you'll notice that in the description, there will be a number of references for those of you who want more information on what I mean by freeze, flight, fight, fawn. You can get that additional information as well as anything else that I talk about in this podcast and in future or in past podcasts. Um, I always bring the receipts so that you can always go find information on what I'm talking about um, because pretty much anything I'm talking about, especially related to trauma, stress induced responses, I bring those receipts as well as anything else that could be considered controversial. I always bring the receipts. And ultimately, hopefully, 
while you're listening to me talk about and reclaiming my truth, the ugly parts, the not so pretty parts, all of the trauma in between, hopefully this will inspire you, a one, to move forward with their own lives. Um, hopefully this is a catalyst for positive change and rising to a higher level of consciousness as well as higher vibrations in level of being. And while reclaiming self and reclaiming the idea of attaining and reaching a better version of yourself, hopefully it will be one that is considered whole, healthy, content, and at peace while still being among the living. Um, So we're going to take a quick break and we will be back shortly. we are back for the second part of this podcast. And with that stated, I do want to go ahead and mention that there is a trigger warning for this next part of the segment. So let's delve into the second part of today's podcast. And again, thank you so much for being a part of this. What is a victim? Oxford Online Dictionary gives us a straightforward, simplistic understanding of a victim as a person negatively impacted, or rather harmed, injured, or killed, resulting from a crime, accident, event, or action. And what does a victim look like? Just take a moment and think about that. The way a victim looks, especially in our society, often goes back to and plays a role into victim shaming. I am 6'1 and very melanated and not small in any way or fashion. I cannot tell you how many times in my personal experiences with abuse, neglect, and other forms of malice have my accounts of those things been discounted simply because I do not look like what most people want to project publicly as a victim. And in a way, being a victim trying to find help to heal myself from my traumas has also left a lasting stain or trauma, as you will in reference to mental health and medical establishments and the professionals, those mental health professionals and medical professionals who have ignored my pleas for assistance over the years. If I simply had a dollar bill for every instance of high school, in high school, I'm sorry, when one or someone, pretty much anyone around me would comment, usually out of the blue, about my size, mainly my height, and tell me how my size would be a deterrent from becoming a victim. So let that seep in for a moment. And again, they were always unprompted just comments from just random people about my size, protecting me from victimization. The reality is that I have already experienced a great deal of trauma from others, beginning at the tender age of five. When I was first victimized or molested, if you prefer that word, in a series of ongoing events that will last off and on for about five years. So hearing other people tell me 
that I did not fit their definition of a victim, especially regarding sexual related trauma, began to do a number on me psychologically. To me, what I was hearing when I was being told that I could not be a victim is that I do not deserve that status. Even if my experiences related to sexual related trauma at the age of five, that would continue on for many years and that my feelings, my experiences and my lived experiences were simply being invalidated. Not only were my experiences invalidated in such a way, they made me feel like I was being dismissed, lacking agency, unworthy. And most importantly, I felt undeserving of help, aid, or the tools needed to make myself whole and to get on my path towards healing and to leading the best life I could at that point. In regards to lacking agency, I know I felt that if I tried to protect myself from further attacks, I could be lumped in with the perpetrator. I would not be given the benefit of the doubt and I could easily become, it could come down to a scenario where it's my word against that of my attacker. Misogynoir is very real and negatively impacts the lives of many women and children and girls and sometimes leads to their deaths, like in cases regarding maternal mortality rates. Misogynoir can lead to deaths as it relates to health care, from not being listened to, not being believed, or improperly treated. So the healthcare system alone is ripe with misogynoir beliefs that do not help patients, but does the exact opposite. Misogynoir is very real. And when victims come forward to the authorities seeking to report abuses or crimes, they're often dismissed and or their reports are often discarded or simply mishandled. So unfortunately, I, like so many other melanated women and girls, have dealt with the intersectionality of a lot of eels. The intersectionality of gender, race, class, and these next two intersectionalities. A lot of people are not talking about them yet, but I am sure they will be. The intersectionality of physical size. Yes, lots of assumptions are made about the way our bodies are designed and built. Height, for example. For many in society, black women and girls can be too tall, meaning you will almost always be seen as a victim, a perpetrator, flat out guilty, or in some way deserving of your fate. No matter how vile the perpetrator actually is, and no matter how vile the actions against you were. The other intersectionality that I want to mention is the intersectionality of public opinion and scrutiny. I mean, it is really a situation in which you are damned if you do and damned if you don't. And besides that, there are more than 400 years of public opinion 
about who we are, what we are worth, and where we belong in this society. And again, unfortunately, black women and girls do bear the brunt of a lot of misogynoir. Just everything all wrapped into one. So I have been setting the stage, like I mentioned before, in previous podcasts for this episode where I begin talking in more detail and more intimately about my traumas. And I will continue to do so in future episodes. So just to recap, what we discussed today were concepts regarding what is a victim and what does a victim look like? What does victim blaming entail? And we also began to discuss what really ails me. Some of the bits and pieces about some of my first remembered traumas that I suffered at the tender age of five years old. So that is it for today and I am going to sign off, but I will post another segment this week. And for now, this is Dr. Antoinette D. Coslow, DHA, and you're welcome. <laughs>